1: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? 2020 is drawing to a close, but none of us will forget this year anytime soon. For China, has it also been a watershed year? As I wrote recently on The Spectator's Coffee House blog, you don't need a Pew survey to know that China has lost much goodwill around the world. Western rhetoric hasn't been so hawkish in a very long time, with talk of a second Cold War gracing commentary pages and calls to decouple supply chains. Lost in the noise is what China thinks about the latest developments. Has it recognised a global shift and what is the leadership doing about it? I'm joined today by one of London's leading experts on China, Dr. Yu Jie, a senior research fellow at Chatham House. Jie, thank you so much for joining.
0: Well, Cindy, I'm delighted to be joining with you today as well. Thank you for inviting me.
1: And I think we have to
0: say that we're, we're, we're not related. We're not related, but we share the on the same surname.
1: <laughs> so first of all, let's, I guess let's talk about China's relations with the rest of the world first before turning the, our gaze into domestically. Sure. Sitting where we are in the UK, we're both in London, it's impossible to n- not to feel, I think, something has changed. Can you? Would you agree with that, first of all? And also, secondly, how irrevocable do you think that change is?
0: Well, I think f- putting the word irrevocable, it seems to make sense to me. I think partially is because the sheer size of the Chinese economy, the sheer weight of the Chinese economy, the strong presence of China across almost every corner in the world make the rest of us or the rest of the world thinking, how are we going to handle this country, which has a very somehow unique political regime, but managed to... Worked all together in the past forty years or so, so I think there seems to be a lot of paradox about China so on the one hand, yes, it is a strong economy, but then on the other hand, it is still a country bounded by very strong nationalistic sentiment when it come to foreign policy making it's a country that constantly seeking for endorsements from the rest of the world, and how China is going to handle that sense of endorsement if China could not get it as what we have experienced in the first phase of the so-called pandemic diplomacy this year. Mm. And,
1: you know, I think what you're alluding to there is China's reaction to the rest of the world's reaction to it this year, something that we've talked about on this podcast before when we are talking about the wolf warriors, for example, just being very defensive and listeners will have seen, for example, this photoshopped picture of the Australian soldier that the foreign ministry put out and refused to apologise for. Jie, do you think that sort of rhetoric, you suggest that it comes from this defensiveness, I mean, it can't be helping China's relations with the rest of the world?
0: Well, it is deeply um, counterproductive as what we have experienced. But also, I'm just questioning, you know, what is the end goal for the Chinese diplomacy? Now, if the end goal of the Chinese diplomacy is about making more friends and as a few enemies as possible, as what Chairman Mao said... And obviously, this end goal of diplomacy by having war warriors shouting around, it did not help at all. But if the end goal of the Chinese diplomacy, it is about pleasing the domestic audience, especially the hawkish nationalistic sentiment, the audience with nationalistic sentiment... And then I would say the Chinese diplomacy achieved a successful goal. So it really depends on which lenses are we looking to in here and also the way of how are we going to assess the Chinese diplomacy. What well, is it really for the world or is it really for China and for the Chinese Communist Party to build around its legitimacy?
1: Do you think that Wolf Warrior is a 2020 phenomenon? It's something new this year?
0: But no, it is not new. I think it's a ever-developing, ever-evolving process. And that is already happening since President Xi came to power because what he has is this whole idea of the so-called national rejuvenation. Now, part of the national rejuvenation, it is to place China in the center of the global stage. So by having China in the center of the global stage, it's not just about China stretching their financial resources, and produce political influence, but it is also about producing that certain narrative that China wants to present to the rest of the world. So I think we'll come to the second part of the warfare diplomacy, is about that particular narrative that the Chinese diplomat want to present to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to China's
1: clash with the West, even a few years ago, there were books written about the Thucydides Trap, where you know, of course, the Spartans came up against the Athenians, and the idea was that one growing power challenging a status quo power couldn't possibly avoid conflict. How much do you think that of what we're seeing in 2020, this increasing hawkishness from the West? comes from China's words and actions, and is therefore justified on the side of the West, or maybe comes from this inevitability of China growing stronger? Was it always going to be like this?
0: Well, I think it's a matter of both, as I said earlier, because the expectation that the West had in general before the end of the Cold War is hoping that by having China come back to the international stage, by having the so-called opening and reform, and China could somehow embracing liberal democracy and running multi-party elections, and therefore become China will become like one of the West, you know, the, the model that West could develop, and China would perhaps will failed to develop that one-party model. But however, I think what we have seen so far is that has gone total opposite direction. On the one hand, it seems to be that the one-party state it seems to be as thriving as ever, and then on the other hand the population in the West now began to question the essence of democracy and if, if we have a democracy and why it brings us certain chaos as you have expected in the United States and in some parts of Europe as well. So I think that sense of competing ideologies has become much stronger than before. So it's a combination of both reasons. It's combination of that China become more and more assertive is because of its inevitable economic growth but then on the other hand, it is also because the West itself is after the financial crisis and trying to looking for its own identity to go through a bit of soul-searching process.
1: Mm. And what do you think China's reaction to changing global events have been? We talked a little bit about wolf warriors already and the defensiveness in words, but China's also introduced this year this idea of the dual circulation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure.
0: I mean, that seems to be... has been much overlooked by Western commentary so far I've seen. Now, the dual circulation is pretty much about abandoning China's previous strategy regarding going abroad, by having Chinese companies going abroad and also encouraging more exports-oriented manufacturers. Now, instead, dual circulation, on the one hand, you have the domestic circulation. By asking the Chinese companies who are used to producing for export but focusing on Chinese domestic market, and encouraging the Chinese consumers to buy the Chinese products, not foreign products. So this is one part of the domestic circulation. Now, on the international circulation, it will be the continuous effort of increasing its export. Now, as you can see, the Chinese export has grown continuously by the end of this year. Now, these are two circulations added together. The intention is very much about building a resilient economic system by itself, which could be able to combat in rather hostile international environment. And what really surprised me is actually on the latest 14th Five Years Plan that has been issued by the Chinese Communist Party a month ago has openly suggested that the international challenges China is facing is unprecedented and many challenges that China has faced has not really encountered in the past. And this is rather alarming. I have not seen that, that the Chinese Communist Party, even after in the aftermath of 1989, to admit that international environment has been so hostile towards China. Now, they have openly admit this, and certainly they will have to rethink their strategies. How are they going to engage with the world? So much is about volatile US-China relations, but it is also about China's or the Chinese companies' rather restrictive access to the global market in the next few years or so. So this really prompted the Chinese decision makers and economic planners and also the companies to rethink about its strategy to engage with the rest of the world. So you would actually see, I wouldn't call it retreat of China in the next few years, but I would actually see a recalibration of China's external strategy in the next few years to come.
1: What does that mean in terms of China's investment out? We've seen worries, especially fueling worries in London, of Chinese investment causing reliance on China, whether it's in the education sector or in the energy sector, telecoms, of course. So for us in the West, what will we see in the next few years? Will we see less Chinese investment or slowdown?
0: Well, we will see a gradual slowdown. I think that slowdown process has already happened since 2016. I think partially it's because of the capital control inside China. So I think 2016, is the, that number has picked, and then there's a gradual slowdown. But then I think from this year and next year onward, we'll see a drastic reduction regarding the Chinese investment in the West in general. But what we will see is we are going to see increasing investments of the Chinese state-owned enterprises or private companies in largely East Asia region. Just judging by the recent agreement has been signed, the RCEP, and also the China's potential membership regarding CPTPP, and that for me is a very clear sign that China is now beginning to rethink its external strategy to return to Asia, to base in Asia, rather than being something more far-stretched.
1: You mentioned capital controls there. Can you explain what's happened with that in China
0: since 2016? Now, regarding the capital control in China since 2016, it is largely because many Chinese companies, as well as individuals, have a large number of foreign currencies at uh, their own hands. And some of the Chinese companies use those their foreign currencies um, to purchasing properties or conducting merger and acquisition in order to shifting their foreign reserves out of China, so as to many individuals has done the same thing as well. So that's part of the reason the Chinese getting the Chinese government getting very cautious about too much capital fly out of China and therefore has imposed the idea that the Chinese companies have can only um, conducting merger and acquisition related to their core business sector like for example a Chinese railway company and who actually bought a British pub and it is unrelated to their core businesses on high-speed railways or on, the, on anything railway related. So such a things could not be really such a business model cannot be conducted um from 2016 onwards. So that's why we have seen a drastic decline in terms of Chinese acquisition and merger happening. Partially, is because of this capital control.
1: Mm, very interesting. And you point out that even in the aftermath of 1989, China didn't talk about the West, or rather the rest of the world, like this. Do you think its presidency being much more aware of what the world is thinking? What is motivating this change?
0: Well, I think it's, uh, the motivation here are twofold. And firstly from domestic perspective that China has the economics planners have always discussed this rebalancing the Chinese economy and reducing the level of debt and relying more on, on consumption and that I mean that discussion has going uh, ongoing so this whole dual circulation especially domestic circulation strategy that really fits into the overall goal of rebalancing the Chinese economy now, secondly, it is also because the U.S.-China relations is now entering a phase of fundamental changes. Because that's simply the economic complementarities between China and the United States are no longer there as what we have experienced it in the early 21st century. So that really prompted China to rethink its relations with the United States and with the West in general. So therefore they have decided if there's only way that the only means for the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party is to maintain the economic growth and perhaps this is really the good time to strengthen its own domestic economic system. And therefore perhaps that's the best way to future proof itself to combating the hostilities from the United States and from the G7 members. So we've heard
1: about decoupling from the American perspective. Sure. It sounds like the Chinese are trying to pull back a little bit
0: as well. Oh yes, they have. Actually, this whole notion of decoupling is generated from, I would say, back to 1950s, late 1950s, when Soviet Union decided to withdraw all the technical experts' assistance to, towards China, and the the party has learned quite a pointed lesson that whatever the core technologies. China need to own by itself, not to rely on foreign assistance. I mean, as you can see from this entire debate on on the vaccine as well, China has have a different type of COVID vaccine has now entering the final testing phases. Again, this is a whole notion of self reliance and self independent self dependence. I mean, this is some, this is nothing new. I think it's just because of the so-called talking about decoupling had made the whole thing become more and more acute and more imminent. Mm.
1: And I think we see that, you know, in, in the aftermath of the pandemic, the UK, for example, is trying to decouple from the world economy as well through these things called Project Defend, where Boris Johnson is saying we need to have a better domestic PPE capabilities to not rely on China. But on a deeper level, does that worry you for the sake of world peace, that these giant players are separating their reliances on each other? Because one of the liberal arguments that there won't be a Cold War is that China is so integrated into the world economy. But if it's trying to pull itself out, does that give it more capability to do things that are, might be more aggressive?
0: I wouldn't say so at this stage, because even if we are talking about a self-reliance, even if we were talking about China being able to develop things independently, and such things would take a long time, and such things which also require talents that's deeply embedded in the education system. Because so far in China, it has this education system that very much discouraging independent critical thinking, very much encouraging, you know, follow whatever your superior has told you. So that is really a way which would hinder the scientific innovation to some extent. So that would not really help China on the one hand. Now, on the other hand, for the rest of the world, and especially for the West in general, by decoupling against China. That requires extra funding. That requires separate industrial policies. Now, I don't think any European or, or American government at this stage have the spare money in order to support a separate industrial policy. So the discussion about decoupling is very much happening on the political sphere, on among the politi- political establishments. But you hear less and less for enterprises, and you hear less and less for American companies which have constantly invested in China in the past four or five years, irrespective of how hostile that rhetoric come out of the White House. So I think we have a lot of talking about decoupling, but when it's actually happening, it is not happening at this stage so far.
1: Mm. And you mentioned RCEP. And it's a trade agreement that hasn't really had much attention, I think, at least in the West. And we've been talking about the pandemic, we've been talking about Brexit. But RCEP is basically one of the largest trade agreements with 15 countries in Asia Pacific, from Australia to China to Southeast Asian nations. So I guess that brings me on to my next question, which is that China has signed this. It has been accepted into this group. Does China have more friends on the global stage than people in the West might think?
0: I wouldn't use the word friends because the friends is all about see each other eye to eyes and share the same values. You know, when it comes to judgment on values, China is always the outlier. So I wouldn't use the word friend, but I would rather use the word of economic partners. I mean, surely, for many of the ASEAN countries, they are economically far more dependent on China than dependent on the United States. So... Don't forget, I did the, the day, RCEP is the ASEAN-led initiative. It's not China-led initiative, and it's just because China's economic presence within the region make China become such a vital net member for that particular trade agreement. But if you actually look into the details of RCEP, I and mean, you find the chapters on digital um, data protection, on um, trade in services, is quite weak. So that need to be strengthened. I think what China intended to do within RCEP, and also within the potential CPTPP. It is to increasing is the so-called discursive power, the ability to be able to shape the international debate and setting the international agenda from the very beginning of that debate. I think that's what something that Xi Jinping has always promoted since he came to power. So the RCEP and the it is really an expression, a testament for China is doing so. I always find that question of who holds the discursive power sure. a really
1: interesting one, sure. because who are you asking? I mean, surely everyone who is observing international politics are doing it from their particular perspective, and that's, that's I guess, part of my question as well, is whether or not in our sphere, in the Western centrism, how much Western centrism is there, that we are not seeing, for example, China's allies in Southeast Asia so much, as we are seeing its belligerence in the South China Sea, we're not seeing its Alliance with Brazil when Turkey and Indonesia, which have all booked Chinese vaccines because they don't think they can get their hands on the Pfizer ones. So who decides who holds that microphone? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think let's put it in this way. I think the Western intellectual community always accuse that China seems to be a revisionist power. Yes, I do not deny that. But I think we should put some nuances in here that China is indeed a revisionist power. But it's a revisionist power by a la carte. So China decided to choose which part of international agreement or which part of the international order that China dislike and then revise, and which part of the international agreement or multilateral order actually would fit into China's purpose and China choose to abide. So I think we need to distinguish on the spheres on which part that China decided to follow or not. So if you actually look into the economic global governance, if you actually look into the financial architecture, and China seems to be a positive and active player for that, follow the international rules and existing orders. But if you do look into the issues on cybersecurity, cybersecurity, on maritime security, and China is definitely a total outlier that very much go against the existing international rule. So I think the picture is far more complex by just suggesting China is the total revisionist power completely.
1: And yet, yeah, just going back to dual circulation, finally, I just wondered what the actors involved think about all of this. By that, I mean the state-owned enterprises and the private businesses that have been for so long encouraged to invest abroad, as well as the consumers who often prefer imported goods. Is dual circulation really something that can be achieved through a top-down directive?
0: I do think that the Chinese companies and also the Chinese private investors um, realized that international environment, both economic environment as well as the geopolitical environment has been increasingly hostile towards Chinese entities, and therefore they began to rethink their strategies as well. Yes, indeed, the government encouraged the Chinese companies invested invest abroad. But the situation has now changed, and therefore they have decided, okay, let's go back to the domestic circulation, investing inside the Chinese um, market instead. Now, yes, in the past, the consumers often quite prefer the imported goods. But on the other hand, the Chinese consumers also began to acquire a taste of buying some kind of high-end domestic consumer products as well. So even though... We have not seen a massive change in scale, but to a large extent, this is already happening. Um, would you consider top-down di- um, directive direction will achieve such a goal? Yes, I think so. Uh, for many things in China, if there's a strong political willingness, that will happen. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, delighted. Thank you.
1: And thank you for listening to the final episode of Chinese Whispers of this year. We'll be back next year with more interesting discussions. And if there's anything in particular that you'd like the Chinese Whispers treatment on, then email podcasts at with your ideas for topics that I should be covering. Thanks for
0: listening and join us again next year.